I'm Dean Olsher, and this is The Really Big Questions. It's the podcast where we ask the really big questions. For example, why do humans tell stories? Storytelling is far more fundamentally human than even human beings realize. E.O. Wilson is a biologist, and he's a storyteller. He's among the world's top experts on ants, but he's also written best-selling popular science books, and he's won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes. He's one of those rare people who can do groundbreaking science and explain it to non-scientists. So he has special insight into why humans tell stories. The mind works by telling stories. The mind is a simulation of experience that's been lived and recalled and a simulation of events that would be possible for the future. We are constantly telling ourselves stories. Uh, We're remembering things. Uh, We are planning scenarios. And the result is then we make choices on which stories we wish to follow. And that takes us into the future. But as part of that, we relive the stories in our mind of our past experience. What's your evolutionary understanding of why we do this? That's the evolutionary understanding. But I think that that's probably what the mind will be shown eventually to comprise. Storytelling is the human mind. In just the last 15 years, I've noticed many more science writers taking their cue from you and and using storytelling techniques in the way that they communicate science. And that's where I start to get nervous because I know that stories have the ability to shut off our critical function and mesmerize us. So I'm a little I'm a little worried when I see how drunk our culture has become on storytelling. It has. Um, in uh, so far as uh, we have become so good at telling fantasy stories, and that has, of course, been the genius of the entertainment industry to generate an endless number of stories implicit in our music, all of our fiction, our movie industry, and uh, television, and don't forget computer games have uh, so enriched and deepened storytelling that it's tended to pull us away from having the kinds of experiences in real life that allow the best judgment. Yeah, uh, This is certainly the case in this one area where I have some experience, and that is in the perception of nature and uh, the loss of interest in uh, nature, natural history, and pastoral existence and the whole ensemble of our ancient activities, all that is being abandoned uh, increasingly by uh, the intensely urbanized uh, and fantastical storytelling uh, that we can achieve. Electronically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pixar may be the ultimate enemy you know, of, uh, of, of human realism. I realize that's an exaggeration, but I think it captures what I was just trying to say. I believe, too, that um, the essence of storytelling entails a very limited number of archetypes. I'd like to see that word come back. Right. Uh, and the archetypes, uh, as I suggest to young scientists in my book, Letters to a Young Scientist, recently, are what they should think themselves all about. 
as becoming explorers and discovering new information and new ideas. And they include the ones like the Holy Grail. In this case, we won't call it holy, but we'll say the Grail, the secret. Yeah. Uh, whether it's the um, boson that we're seeking with an accelerator, uh, whether it is the way to connect theoretical electrodynamics with relativity theory, science is full of grails. There's, there's not eight million stories in the Naked City. There's one story told eight million times. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good way of putting it. In storytelling, novels and short stories, you do have a potentially infinite number of particularities when you uh, introduce a special time, a special place. Then that allows you to spin an infinitude of these. But why do people so enjoy just running through the same formulas and, and outcomes over and over infinitely. Do you know the answer? I think the secret may be in um, when studies were made of rhesus monkeys that were in pens, that is, they were confined, and w were shown various objects of all kinds and so on, revealed that what they most wanted to see were other monkeys. And there's something about the human nature that uh, reflects that. You really want to relive uh, the small number of uh, emotions that are built into our minds. There are basic instincts. There's research that indicates reading literary fiction creates empathy in the reader. Uh, that's what a lot of uh, fiction does. I mean, we uh, uh, it stimulates emotion, certainly, and that's what gives us pleasure. And connects us to other people, forms bonds with other people. because I, I, Well, that's true. That's one of the results, is that uh, we become increasingly skilled in personal relationships. And that itself, cooperative uh, behavior and, and the ability to read intentions of other people, are increasingly believed by social psychologists, I think, to be the essence of human nature uh, and a main source of what makes us so skilled and why we have such big, funny-shaped heads <laughs> <laughs> uh, with, uh, you know, this absurdly rounded forehead because we've, we have these immense centers for storing information. We, uh, that's what, how we evolved. We went from the chimp size of somewhere around uh, 400 cubic centimeters through our immediate ancestor, Homo erectus, which got it up to about 900 to 1400, uh, and our heads just expanded uh, as we got better and better and more skillful uh, in storytelling and in making societies work. Well, what do we know? I mean, tell me, and also specifically about the imagination and biology. Yeah. And what do we know about how those things work together? Well, I've, one thing I've tried to do is, in several places is uh, show uh, why um, scientists and poets think alike, that is, uh, creative people in the humanities and the arts, think alike at the beginning. And the phrase I like the best is, uh, the ideal scientist thinks like a poet, writes like a bookkeeper, but he's still the poet inside. And what we do is, in the earlier stages of creative thought, engage in poetic excursions, that is to say, we engage in fantasy. If you're really a creative scientist, you would engage in a lot of fantasy. You Just because engage... you're asking, what if? That's, yeah, that's what your if, main job. But not only that, you uh, say uh, A appears 
to be somehow connected with B. Let me think up even fantastical connections that might be there, and then I'll go looking for them. And uh, it's free-ranging, it's sloppy, it's very human. But the, because scientists tend to open notebooks then, having hit upon a really good idea or done an experiment that seems to work, and open uh, a notebook, pretty soon they're now devising experiments with statistical evaluations uh, that uh, <clears throat> will qualify the work as being done as science. It has to be replicable, and it has to be testable that way, and it has to be done with uh, statistical evaluation of the soundness of the result. And now you get into the technical uh, way of describing all this, and uh, the average person who's fully intelligent and could know a lot about science at this point throws up their hands and says, oh, science is not for me. Uh, it's just too difficult. It isn't. The best scientist thinks like everybody else. Well, I say scientists think like, uh, like everybody else. The best scientists think like the best poets. That's Harvard biologist and best-selling author E.O. Wilson. You can hear and see more about the science behind storytelling on our website, trbq.org. And you can also hear our hour-long radio special, What's Your Story?, Catch up with us on Twitter and on Facebook, and there you can ask us your really big question. This podcast was produced by Flora Lichtman and Chris Julin. The Really Big Questions is a project of Sound Vision Productions with funding from the National Science Foundation. I'm Dean Olsher. 